Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. Today, I have Brian Julian with me to talk about Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the social contract. Welcome, Brian. Hello, Gail. So our last episode with Elliot, we were talking about moving from the Middle Ages into the modern period talking about the reasons why people would want different institutions. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau is a major figure. He's often credited with being very influential on the French Revolution, which is something we're going to talk about real soon. We thought that we should talk about Rousseau and his ideas. So, Brian, why don't you set up historically Rousseau, his life and times, and what is he writing into? Okay. So Rousseau was writing during the mid-1700s. He's at the height of the Enlightenment. In some ways, his thought is very much typical for Enlightenment thinkers. There's other ways that what he did was running counter to the times. There's elements of his thought that actually looks forward to the 1800s and the Romantic period, especially the way that he loves nature and that sort of thing. But the social contract is in tune with Enlightenment sort of ideas of we're going to look at how a society should be formed and it's we're going to use our reason to think about this and it's very much a very much a product of the times which elements of it got picked up he died before the french revolution but elements got picked up during the french revolution and the spirit of some of what he said carried forward into these actual real life events where large changes happen in society yeah as we have usually done with many of these authors rousseau is sometimes taken to be this villainous figure and people are certainly taking Rousseau and quoting him as part of the revolution. He is used as a source for some of the thought. We are maybe not going to address the historical question of whether that's a legitimate move on Rousseau, but we're going to more generally talk about the thesis of one of his major works, The Social Contract. Brian, what is the thesis of The Social Contract? What is Rousseau's main question that he's answering? So Rousseau is looking around, we have societies. We have, in his day, we'd have a lot of monarchies. So societies exist, governments exist, but he wants to ask the question, what makes a government legitimate? It's not a historical question. It's not a question of how did this society happen to be, but is this society set up the way that it ought to be? So one obvious answer that comes to mind is they have the ability to enforce what they're doing. They have the power to enforce what they're doing. How does Rousseau think about that answer to the question? Yeah, so he um, looks at, you know, a lot, of, a lot of societies got formed when one society came and conquered another. And now, you know, society A conquers society B, and society B just has to do with the king of Society A says, because now they are part of A. And Rousseau is, yeah, that makes a lot of sense practically. If somebody has a ton of power over you and can wipe you out with the flick of their wrist, then you do what they say. But as soon as they don't have power over you, you actually do really well to get out from under them. He would say that if a government is ruling solely because they have power, then 
That is not a legitimate government. That's just, pragmatically speaking, one that is going to be in power for a while. But as soon as it loses power, the citizens are going to overthrow it or run away or something like that. And it's not a legitimate form of government. So if power isn't the, a source of legitimacy for governments, what are the other options on the table? Okay, we're looking at why should I obey certain laws? So we're going to have to have a reason that tells me I need to follow this law because of X. I mean, one possibility is I should follow the laws because I get benefits out of doing it. I get security and, you know, resources are provided for me from the infrastructure of the society and so on. Like one answer possibly that I could give for what makes a government legitimate is that I benefit from it. So I could imagine that part of the criticism of the perspective that a set of laws is beneficial and that's why we should follow them is that the capacity of a governing body to benefit the whole citizenry is somewhat limited because a government is impersonal because it's not relating to every individual in the state. It can't gauge what everybody needs and the benefits that accrue to certain parts of society might not accrue to all parts of society, or they might not be benefits that everybody needs or wants. Maybe they would be better served if other benefits serve them, right? There's a question of how can the government adjudicate what the correct benefits are for it to focus its efforts on providing for everybody? Yeah, no, that could be like if, if, If I look at the government and see, you know what, I'm not getting any benefit from this, I would be better on my own, then that would mean that I could just decide not to follow what the laws say. Which, this actually indicates that Rousseau asking this question, it's a very dangerous sort of question to ask because it is asking everybody to think about whether they really should obey the laws of the people that are giving them laws. Which in his day, that's going to lead to something historically like the French Revolution, where for whatever reason, obviously it's very complicated, but the French people decided the monarchy in France wasn't doing what it should. It wasn't legitimate and they're going to get a new government. And that had very real practical consequences. There's an analogy that I think we might introduce here and maybe we use it as it's useful or not we have people coming up to a four-way stop and the question is what's the most just way to adjudicate who goes first now in the united states the way that works is if it's a four-way stop there are four stop signs and whoever got to their stop sign first comes to a complete stop and then when it's clear that everybody has stopped they go and then the next person who arrived goes next and you continue in that order. But it may be that you could have a soon-to-be mother who's about to give birth in the car, right? And that it would be of greater benefit to her to run the stop sign and get to the hospital in order to deliver the baby safely than it would for 
whoever would go next to go next, right? That person might just be out for a drive or may not have anything urgent going on. And so there's a question of if the legitimacy of the government comes from the benefits that it's conferring, in this case, driving safety, we've neglected the need for this mother to deliver her baby safe. Yeah, so if we go down the route of looking at what benefits us as making a society legitimate, that's going to have raise further complications of we're looking at long-term benefits, short-term benefits to the group, benefits to the individual, and so on. So yes, that's going to raise a a series of a series of questions that is more a lot more complicated than just looking at myself and going, what would I like to have or right. what do I need? Another thing that comes up, it may be that the way that we benefit everybody is by averaging out the benefit between different people. And so you could have members of the society who have more stuff or more resources or whatever, and those resources get removed from those people in order for everybody to have the benefit of those resources in common. And uh, a question that comes up in that instance is, well, is it just for the government or other people to do that to the people who have accrued more resources? Yes, and in particular... Somebody who started off with more resources and then had them taken away might ask, hey, I'm losing out on this. Maybe I don't have obligations to this government because it's not benefiting me under a certain kind of understanding of benefit. Yeah, again, they start asking that question. That can potentially be a dangerous question because that might lead them to seceding or just not obeying or so we've looked at a couple of possibilities for what confers legitimacy on the government there's a question of power and obviously the problems with that are just because the government has power doesn't mean that it's doing anything good and we also looked at benefit and just because benefits are happening doesn't mean they're happening for everybody or does it mean that the right sort of benefits are happening? What's another possible source of legitimacy? Before we get to Rousseau's view, what's another possibility for what confers legitimacy on a government? Okay, another possibility, both of the ones we've talked about so far have this connotation of the laws coming at me from the outside, whether it benefits me or not. But another possibility is that a government is legitimate is if I have input into the laws, if I'm helping to make the laws, then, using your instance of redistributing wealth, even if I'm a wealthy person, but I decide, you know what, it would be best for society if we helped out the people that have the, the least and maybe took a little more from those with the most. One way of thinking would be, if I helped to set that law, I voted for it or something like that, then that's legitimate. So, if I had a voice, whether I end up being personally benefited by it or not, Having a voice is enough to make the government legitimate. I need to follow it because I helped create the rules. Each of these possibilities for what makes a government legitimate can get much more complicated than we are painting them right here. Yes. Right? Because the discussion of how much input is enough, you start talking about majorities. And why do we have majority rule in democracy? And 
are majorities legitimate at all? Or is there some other criteria about, is it just the participation that's important? Or how do we adjudicate what level of involvement confers legitimacy? There's a version of this discussion where you're not talking about is it involvement per se, but the discussion is sussing out fine details of what level of involvement would render something legitimate versus illegitimate. A particular example for what you were talking about, you know, if there's a vote for president and I got to vote in it, but the person I didn't vote for won, did that mean that I got input into it or not? Occasionally you'll hear people say, that's not my president and stuff like that. I didn't vote for that person, so I'm not bound by having to listen to what he says or something like that. It's not just that I had to have been part of the process, but I had to have determined what the outcome is or something along those lines. An obvious problem that arises is we just have cases in history where the majority of people in a given society were unjust. And so if you have a majority deciding what's happening, then there's an issue of if the majority is deciding unjust things, then is that legitimate? And if it's not, how do we sort that out? Because the mechanisms that we have in place, since it's, it's based on everybody being involved, there doesn't seem to be a solution if most of the people involved, i.e. the decision that's going to get made, if that decision is going to be not only against my preference, but against presumably what I think is right or what I think is moral, how do I solve that problem? Mm-hmm. And so that can become a source of concern about whether a thing is legitimate or not. Yeah. And actually that makes a nice, the issue just raised brings up another possible candidate for what makes a society legitimate in that someone might say that a society and its laws are only legitimate if they are moral. Any immoral laws that come about just aren't laws and I don't have to listen to them. But it doesn't, and in that situation, it wouldn't matter if I had input or not. Suppose you had, obviously, very hypothetical situation where you had an emperor who was, had impeccable morality and always decreed things that were right. In that situation, that would be a legitimate society, and I would need to obey the laws because they fit with morality. But if his, you know, less impeccably moral son takes over... And now some of the laws are just self-serving for him or something like that. Maybe those laws I don't have to obey or we get rid of the new guy in favor of somebody who's more moral or something like that. So that's another possible answer to the question of what makes a government legitimate is that it's legitimate if it does what is moral. Let's go back to the picture of the woman who's actively giving birth at the stop sign. Mm -hmm. If you were just running a race or if you were just trying to get somewhere and there was a woman giving birth, there's a moral imperative, or at least we feel there's a moral imperative to be like, whatever I'm doing is not important as this. Mm -hmm. And I have this moral imperative to help this person. When you have a law set up for the stop sign situation, in some ways there's not even a way to know because you're looking impartially at who got to the stop sign first. And part of the problem with the idea that all the law should be moral is the question of, do all laws have to do with morality per se? We don't have to have stop signs as a system of regulating traffic safety. Apparently there are, I believe that there are some countries in Europe where they just have roundabouts everywhere 
and almost no signs. And so people drive at like 13 miles per hour or what sounds like a very low speed to us. But because there aren't any signs, they're paying very close attention and they're not driving fast enough that they can't react. And then everybody gets to places at the same speed, but they just have to move slower the whole time. And the system that you build up, it's not completely arbitrary because the laws that you come up with end up demonstrating what's ultimately valuable to your society. But it's not like choosing between the stop sign system and the roundabout system. There's not an obvious moral component to that decision. Or to give another traffic example, whether we drive on the right-hand side of the road or the left, obviously there's no moral difference between the two. And perhaps you could argue there's a moral reason for picking a side. But I think what you're getting at is a lot of it is just pragmatic. It's true, maybe we morally value saving lives, but pragmatically speaking, it just works better if you know what side people are going to be driving on and you know what to expect. And it's not a question of the United States is more virtuous because we drive on the right than some other countries. It's just we happen to pick one side and they pick the other. Moral questions sometimes arise as a reaction to rules rather than vice versa. For instance, if you have a system of roads that is built off of driving on the right-hand side, and so your drivers are on the left of the vehicle, if a company decides that the driveway on their estate breaks all of the rules that everyone is expecting, given how they're usually driving, that could be an immoral choice, right? Because they're trying to purposefully deceive people or screw them up or have a laugh at them or something like that. But the state of how do you morally build a road wasn't set before we had this set of rules in existence for you to contradict. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And like, given that I live in America, if I... I decide I'm just going to drive on the left. It's arguably an immoral thing to do. Oh, now, obviously, there's times where, like, hey, we just had an ice storm. There's trees down, and you have right. to drive on the other side, that sort right. of thing. Right. But, yeah, if I just decide I'm going to drive on the left, one could argue that's immoral because that is basically me choosing to drastically bring up the chance that there's going to be an accident and somebody's going to be hurt. And I know that's going to be the case by choosing that side. The issue with thinking that legitimacy of laws comes from morality is that not everything that needs a law is a moral question. It might just be a question of how are we going to do stuff that's not attendant right or wrong. So we've looked at power. We've looked at benefits. We've looked at participation. And we've looked at morality. Mm Mm-hmm. Are there any other possibilities before we get to Rousseau for what might confer legitimacy on a government? Yeah, there's one or two more that we could talk about. There's probably way more than that. I also wanted to mention, before we got too much farther, these possibilities that we're talking about 
actually, I'm plagiarizing from my own students right now. <laughs> we just discussed the social contract here at Gutenberg. I led the discussion with the freshmen and sophomores. And we raised this question of what makes government legitimate. And the students were coming up with a number of these answers. And we talked about them. We actually held a vote as to which one people <laughs> thought was going to be the right way to think about things. And That's towards one of the one of the options, huh? Yes. We yeah. This next one actually was one that I thought was really interesting because it doesn't always come up, especially in just purely philosophical discussions of legitimacy. But a student raised the fact that the Bible talks about governments having authority render to Caesar what is Caesar's and that sort of thing. So basically the question of maybe a government is legitimate as long as it doesn't go against what God says. So it's similar to the moral route, but this one incorporates the non-moral issues. Basically the idea would be, I have an obligation to obey whatever the government says as long as it's not telling me to do something that goes against what God would want. A government that tells me, worship this other god yes i shouldn't obey that but the government tells me you pay these taxes and you drive on this side of the road and you're gonna get to vote on these things but you don't get to vote on these other things under this view that government could be legitimate because nothing in it contradicts god's law what god would have me to do this would be one way of thinking about it that seems like a moderate version of a different source of legitimacy that people posit which is it is in conformity with the law of god mm -hmm. and there is a lot of let's use the laws of the old testament as models for what legitimacy does a government have in quarantining its citizens, for instance? And there are examples in the Old Testament of if there's a plague in a city, then here's how you do this thing. And an argument might go, this example doesn't allow for the government to do X, Y, and Z. And so if a government does do X, Y, y and Z, that's illegitimate because it's not actually following the law of God. Whereas... What you were just suggesting is there's a lot more things that are arbitrary. And as long as there's not an outright contradiction, I mean, maybe the quarantining example ends up working the same in both ways of thinking about it. But you could definitely picture or imagine that there are situations in which being in conformity with the law of God and not contradicting the law of God end up not being exactly the same set of things. Right, yeah. So I could definitely have, I've lost what track of what number we're on, but I could have another view, as you say, that the law comes from God. That basically, if I have a certain view of the Bible that God has been specific enough in it about how to set up a society and these are expectations for every society, then yeah, I could have a view where the law comes from God, and that's what makes it legitimate. Which, on the plus side, that would clearly be legitimate. If God tells me to do something, I should do it. On the other side, we might end up with questions of, is the Bible really that specific? Is that what the Bible's doing? Is a modern society supposed to look like ancient Israel? There's questions like that that we would have to address if we want to go down that sort of route right as well and then you get issues that are really felt in the time period that we're talking about which is somebody can claim to have authority from god but what makes that the case and so the legitimacy of the government goes back to certain claims about the legitimacy of 
What does the Bible even mean? And so those are issues that are really being felt at this time. We talked with Elliot last week about absolute monarchy and how that is interacting with people not feeling the kind of security that they had come to expect from something like the Roman Empire or something like that. And that leads people to think maybe that isn't legitimate. And if the powers that be are abusive as they claim legitimacy by virtue of them getting their authority directly from God, people are in a new market, right? That's always a complicating question is the Bible has certain things that it's saying, but on the other hand, the Bible also has a picture of humanity that human beings are very ready to claim that God said something in order to further their own aims rather than something else. And so that has to be a question in the Bible itself is how do I distinguish? How am I wise? How do I discern between what's legitimately the voice of God and somebody who's just claiming that to be the case? Okay, so if I've got this right, we've got legitimacy might be derived from power. We've talked about the problems there. Legitimacy might be derived from participation. That was actually the third. The second was the benefit from it. So power, benefit, participation, morality, morality, not contradicting the law of God, and alternatively, in the same school, but a different one, actually being in conformity with the law of God. And you said there are one or two more, and presumably we are talking about the possibilities that the students offered. Are there any more that you guys talked about in that discussion? Yeah, um, there are actually several, but maybe one more that we could just the idea that Maybe a government is legitimate if it's existed a long time. Like, it's traditional. Like, it's it's been around for a while. It's well-established. A bunch of people have grown up in it. Maybe that conveys a kind of legitimacy. Because that might help explain why it's... If I just decide, you know what? I'm starting a society, and I'm the emperor who wants to join. And the city of Eugene is going to be my domain. Right. There are pre-existing governments that have been around a long time that might take a... Who's this mook? Yeah. You know, this answer appeals to me a lot. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's the sole reason, and probably it's some combination of these, ultimately. But one of the things that we talk a lot about around here and that we've talked about in this podcast is how complicated things are and how bad we are at grasping the complexity of things. And it's not the age per se necessarily of a government that confers it legitimacy, but rather the factors that go into making something legitimate are so complicated that the age may be indicative that those other factors are in place. Yeah, that could be. Now, there are several things that we could look at in history that are governments that last for a long time that we would now agree not so great, right? As much as we talk about the Roman Empire and how certain things that they did were innovations on what previous governments did and were possibly better than what other governments did, Overall, Roman Empire, pretty brutal place. The ways that they went about doing the things that they wanted to do, we rightly look back at some of those things and say, no, that was bad. And 
if that's the case, then the fact that they were a long-lived government uh, doesn't necessarily confer any sort of legitimacy on it at all. And one of the things in our fiction that's very common, there's been this government forever (laughs) that's the evil empire government, and we've just never been able to muster the means to overthrow it. And the things that end up being the factors that allow us to overthrow that government say a lot about the authors who write those books and the societies that read those books. Mm -hmm. But we're very familiar with the mere age of a government not conferring legitimacy because we have examples of governments of similar ages that could go either way. Mm -hmm. And it also raises the question of how do you deal with a new government And that there are times when new governments come about, setting aside the question of America's Revolutionary War and was that legitimate and all of that. Once the war was over and the United States was getting itself going and has a president for the first time and stuff like that, all of that's new, but it's not necessarily legitimate. People put a lot of thought into how are we going to have a fair society, just coming along and saying, it's new, so it's bad. That's also a problem as well. Yeah, presumably that would not be an argument to the people in the French Revolution and other revolutions in Europe who are going, well, I mean, clearly what we had before was bad. You know, we may look back at those at those new governments. And I feel generally if we say that was bad is not because, oh, it was new. (laughs) Right. It's because they were bad because more people died under the rule of these new forms of government than had died under the previous government as horrible as the other government might have been Mm -hmm. for whatever reasons right like it's not the newness that we end up critiquing it's the badness right which brings us back to in the end if we were to articulate or be able to articulate a full system of what conveys legitimacy on a government it's not going to be any single one of these necessarily all of these things are contributing factors right we may be looking at the age of an institution because that tells us about certain things that we can't articulate that are true but we also look at the morality of those things part of the morality has to do with the benefits that get conferred part of where the morality is located has to do with how that's relating to god's law or not right so all of these things play a factor but we've skirted around Rousseau, who ostensibly we're talking about this right, podcast. Right, about Rousseau, episode. isn't it? So now that we've laid the table and hopefully given folks stuff to think about in terms of the kinds of areas that these sort of discussions exist in, what does Rousseau think is the basis for legitimacy in a government? So Rousseau goes for an, a version of what I think was our option two. Well, I mean, it was option three. Participation. Participation. Yeah, you called if, me out on that earlier. <laughs> that government is legitimate if the citizens have input into it. And in particular, he emphasizes the way that government needs to be founded on agreement. There's, there needs to be an agreement by the society. And this gives the book, The Social Contract, its name, that we have a social contract formed by people that bring this government into existence. Rousseau is not the first contract theorist. No. Can you talk a little bit about the idea of contract theory? Because this is an idea that's pretty prevalent in political philosophy. Can you just talk a little bit about what is the shape of contract theory? And then we may talk about 
some instances of that. But then what is Rousseau's particular picture? Yes, Rousseau thinks that a government is going to be legitimate if there's an agreement. And the name of this agreement is the social contract. When we talk about a social contract theory, there are two main components to keep in mind. And different thinkers are going to think about them differently, but there's two key parts. One is that a social contract theorist will put forward a view of the state of nature, which this is a picture of what human beings would look like without any government at all. What would it look like for human beings just out in the wild, apart from society? How would they behave? Would they get along well? Would they get along poorly? What would the resources look like? Would they have everything they need or not? And so a social contract theory will put together a picture of what the state of nature is like. And then they will offer an account of how did people move from this state of nature to the situation we're in now where there's a government. So how do you get out of the state of nature? What agreement do people form in order to form a society? And there, there's lots of questions about what are they agreeing to? Are they giving all the power to one person? Are they sharing the power? What exactly are they agreeing to when they form a society? But those are the two key pieces, the state of nature and this agreement or contract that people make to get out of it. The state of nature varies from contract theorist, contract theorist, depending on their view of human nature. And the state of nature can be instructive about what a thinker thinks about what human beings are like. And that's going to inform a lot of the story that they tell about what the state of nature is. For instance, Thomas Hobbes, who wrote Leviathan, thinks that people are just going to slit each other's throats and kill each other wantonly unless you have some kind of leader or group who is strong enough to keep everybody at bay. And so the nature of the social contract is, I'm the sort of being who would kill everybody if I could. However, I don't want to get killed. So I will give up my freedom to kill everybody to either a leader or a group that will keep everybody in check so that we don't all end up killing each other. Right. Yeah. For Hobbes, the whole motivation to enter society is my fear of everybody else. I'm willing to give up my ability to do whatever I want because I'm more afraid of all the other people and their ability to do what they want to me. Whereas Locke has more concerns about property, for instance. It's not so much about being necessarily afraid of other people, although we do want to protect property from people who would steal it. What is Rousseau's assumptions with regard to the state of nature? What does he think human beings are like when they're not part of a government? So for Rousseau, the state of nature is pretty good. Human beings, he thinks, generally are not going to interact a whole lot. Families are a very temporary thing on his model. Basically, the minimum required to raise a child is how long the family stays together. And then as soon as everybody can be independent, they all go off their own ways again. He also has a picture that people are pretty capable and can get the food resources they need pretty easily. He thinks that humans in the state of nature would actually, we'd look at them and don't have a lot to complain about. They're not as mean to each other as people in society are. 
because they don't have stuff to fight over because everybody pretty much just has what they want and does their own thing. For Rousseau, unlike for Hobbes, where we're just trying to desperately get out of the state of nature at all costs, for Rousseau, we have to have a pretty good reason to get out of the state of nature. And we do have one. He does think eventually there's things that are easier to achieve as a group than as an individual. We have motivation to get out of the state of nature and to form a society, but it's not a case where we'll do whatever we need to get security. So Rousseau, when he forms this agreement, he's much more focused on freedom. He's focused on how am I going to enter into a society where I can maintain freedom and not just lose all the freedom that I have as an individual. What we need to be careful as we're forming this social contract is, and where the bulk of his political philosophy is focused, is since we have these things that we want to do together that we need other people to do, how do we structure the social contract so that nobody who is participating in the social contract loses out on the freedoms that they would have otherwise? Because we're getting both the benefits of being able to work together but we're still benefiting from the general goodness of the state of nature. Exactly. So Rousseau Rousseau likes paradoxical statements. He has something along the lines of like, he wants to achieve a situation where we can uh, enter this uh, agreement, but remain just as free as we were before we entered it. We're tying ourselves down, but staying free at the same time. And that's the needle he's trying to thread there. Yeah, so for Rousseau, we're going to give up our right to decide to do whatever we want, to decide what happens to me in every instance. That is, in a way, we're giving up our individual rights. Before, I had the right to do whatever I wanted, and by that we just mean, really, I had the ability to do whatever I wanted. Nobody was stopping me from doing what I wanted. I'm giving up the right to do whatever I want, And we're going to give up these rights to the whole group. There's a group of us coming together to form a society. Each one of us is giving up our individual rights, not to one person. We're not electing a king and saying the king gets to decide what I do now. Instead, we're giving up our individual rights to the entire group, to the entire society. Each of us is putting ourselves under the authority of the whole society collectively. And this is how Rousseau envisions a society come together. He has a famous term that he uses, we're going to put ourselves under the general will. And the general will is a complicated idea to figure out exactly what Rousseau has in mind. But just like I have a particular will that looks out for what I want, there's what I want as an individual, and that's my individual will or particular will, The society as a whole, as a collective, has a general will that's what's good for the society as a whole. The whole group of the citizens has a will somehow. Maybe it's metaphorical. Maybe it's actualized in some way. But there is some sense of what the society wants that is what is good for society. And that general will is then going to make the laws. And they're legitimate because it was made through this agreement. So if you are putting yourself under the authority of everybody else in the group, does he address the issue of fashions? Just as the same way as a person changes their mind or has different moods, the group can also do that. Does he talk about how do you absorb the changing 
moods of a whole group? Or is that something that he leaves somebody practical to work out in their sort of telling of it? This is one of the tricky things about Rousseau in that he's aware that on the one hand, the general will is going to be ascertained by asking all the individuals what should happen. And that's where fashions could come into play. If everybody gets in mind like, oh, let's do this one thing that could change it. He also is very, he also emphasizes several times that it's not always the case that even the group as a whole knows what is good for them. And sometimes he attaches the term general will to what is actually good for people, despite what they think they want, and actually good for the group. So there, in that sense, fashion can't affect, say, the general will. So there it's a question of, part of the answer would be, what sort of safeguards would we have that we are actually getting to the general will and not just what people happen to have in mind at a given time? This is something worth further exploring the idea of the general will because the problem with this idea, it seems to me, is that the way that he talks about the general will is almost like a math problem. It's if you throw in all the things that everybody has in common and then you take away all of the individual bits that people don't have in common, then you're left with a general will. And it just seems that's, first of all, not a sound analysis of how crowds work. Mm -hmm. It's not a sound analysis of like how people think about stuff. Mm -hmm. And how are you going to actually figure out what to do? Because you may want something, but wanting a thing and doing a thing don't lead to the same thing. Mm -hmm. I could want something and then go about it the whole wrong way. <laughs> yeah. And just because we've now generalized this thing, and just because we now know, oh, everybody wants it, there's no guarantee that the actual policy that these people are going to put together is actually going to do anything or lead to the outcome they want or be related to the outcome they want in any way. <laughs> yeah, no. And while we're on the topic of problems with the general will, it seems that there's even a fundamental issue to think about just from the way that he's conceiving it in that we mentioned that his goal is to remain free in creating this society and so his answer is how am i free in a society why is this a legitimate society i'm free because the general will is my will too i want what's good for society just like i want what's good for me but that move to saying, oh, I'm free because the general will is also my will seems to potentially equivocate on when I would be free, what is truly mine. So for instance, he has a famous statement like, if the general will is my will and the general will makes the laws, so when I'm obeying the laws, under Rousseau's way of thinking, I'm really just obeying myself. So I'm free. When I obey the laws, I'm obeying myself. And Rousseau goes so far to say that when I don't want to obey the law and society forces me to do it, he has the nice little phrase that I'm being forced to be free. That's the sort of statement that ought to make us pause because it sounds contradictory. And in this case, I'm really tempted to say it is contradictory, that he's made a situation where the society is legitimate because all the citizens are the ones that 
came together and decided what the laws are going to be. But then he's going even further and saying they're really the ones that made the laws, so they're all just obeying themselves. But talking about the group and talking about the individuals seems really important here. Obeying a group that I'm a part of is a very different thing from obeying myself. Which is important. What really makes me free and which would give legitimacy to it? One solution to this, which tends to be where I tend to think Rousseau is headed, which is to think the actual content of the general will is minuscule. Because I think there's mainly two ways that the general will gets interpreted when it runs into this tension. One way is some sort of absolutist take that once you've been subsumed in the society, the collective is what's important and the collective having its freedom is the important thing. And somehow that transfers to the individual. So that's one way that it is often taken. The other way is what I'm suggesting and as Rousseau would see that would be ridiculous that, oh no, we're creating despotism. So I tend to think that what he means is actually the general will's content is just really small. <laughs> And so the legitimacy of a law comes from it being enacted from the general will. But what is the general will? There's a further question, which is to say, is this law even in the general will at all? Mm -hmm. And the groups of those things, as you're experiencing the tension between the abuses of or even just the reign of the majority and the minority is, well, it just the general will keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller, but whatever thing that everybody actually agrees on, however that actually averages out, that's the actual general will. If that's the view you take, which I think that's what he has to end up thinking in order for him not to be for collective despotism, which seems obvious, then you go, okay, how useful of a metric then is the general will? If it's just a math thing that actually everybody agrees about, how does that actually help us determine the legitimacy of a law or if this law originated from the general will or what have you? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I think it, it highlights on the one hand, Rousseau is hard to read because he's very catchy. He's fun to read because he has a great literary knack for pithy statements and he's very engaging to read, but he is often imprecise and he has frequent comments where he says this might sound like it contradicts itself but just wait till what i say later and it's not always clear that by the time you've gotten to the end of the book that all the pieces are fitting together which leaves you as you said it leaves you with different positions that you could possibly attribute to him and they all have potential problems that you wish he would have addressed. Right. You're left trying to figure out what the implications of things are. Yes. And you get competing views of what Rousseau's ultimate view is because Rousseau doesn't solve those implications for you. No. He doesn't spell those out in a way where that resolves some of the tensions that his writing engenders. Right. And we mentioned way back at the beginning that this book had an impact upon the French Revolution the book itself is very theoretical. It is not a practical guide to how exactly are we going to form a country. To the extent that it played a role, it's not like everybody was looking to Rousseau and going, oh, he gave us a roadmap, now we're going to follow it. 
It was very much just the theory and the ideas and this idea of the general will. I mean, that sounds good. Hey, let's live in a society where we're all, we're directed by what's good for all of us and we're all free. If you just leave it at that, it's, oh, that sounds pretty good. There's the famous saying that politics is the art of the possible. Mm-hmm. And that's possibly one of the problems with Rousseau is, is it even possible to get at the general will? If that's even a useful thing to get at. Yes. Yes. I mean, one of the things that becomes apparent very quickly in the French Revolution is C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man talks about how somebody's going to end up deciding if you can come up with a system of education that just makes people believe one thing or another in a sort of Pavlovian response kind of way, somebody's still having to decide what people should value and what they should learn and who should that be. And the general will at its most benign is, well, it'll just work for everybody, and that's naive. Or (laughs) it's the people who understand what the general will is, and that's inviting some kind of despotism. So either way you slice it, Rousseau's theory, it's not a pretty picture when it's tried to be worked out in practice. Yeah, and even apart from, you're totally right, I think... Even apart from the practical implications, I think one of the benefits of thinking about someone like Rousseau is to stop and think about the question that he's asking that we started with of what makes a government legitimate. And as a contemporary American, I think I'm very drawn to the idea of if I got to vote on it, then... That's legitimate. The direction that Rousseau is going, that, you know, uh, the government's only legitimate if we give input. But reading Rousseau and thinking about it, it raises the question of, is that really how I should think about it as a Christian? You know, Christianity is not all about me getting to vote on what happens. Christianity is a lot about recognizing that God is God and I am not. However that works out politically, I'm not saying that democracy is bad or anything like that, but the idea that I would be free and only would obey a government where I got to decide how that government worked. I mean, the fact is, if I lived in ancient Israel, God would decide exactly how the society is going to work, and I should just go along with it. I mean, A, it would be good for me, because God's not going to design a society that destroys everybody, and B... That's just my place. If God says, this is what you're supposed to do, then my place is to do it. So I feel like thinking about Rousseau, one of the helpful things, it can be a historically interesting question, how did it play out the French Revolution, or what sort of contradictions might it have? But it can also just raise the question, for me as a Christian, how do I relate to the government that I'm under? And maybe one of those, or several of those other options that we talked about earlier Maybe that's how I should relate to the government. Maybe I'm going down a bad road if I start saying, all the people in government right now, I didn't vote for them, so I don't need to listen to them. Maybe that's taking my modern democratic impulses too strongly and not the kinds that Rousseau was influential in feeding down to us. And it's worth stopping and asking how, if God's in control of the whole world, how then should I think about governments? And I don't have the answer, but it's a good question to ask. (laughs) Yeah, the question, as we've been alluding to through through our whole discussion, the legitimacy of a government is a complicated sort of thing. And one of the questions 
that's related to this issue of the general will and voting and all of that stuff is why why do we allow majority rule mm-hmm. is that because it's the most just thing or what is our definition of justice such that ends up being just this feels like a very sort of teenage lesson that movies and media is trying to promote because they're popular people don't just do whatever the popular people do Mm -hmm. right that would lead you to say there's no legitimacy in majorities and yet if we're going to have a democracy majorities have to rule because otherwise what are we doing that's how voting works there are questions of how is the system actually going to work Mm -hmm. how are we actually going to make this work in practice that are separate questions from the ideal system or even the most realistic system. Mm -hmm. And reading somebody like Rousseau, who's talking about these ideas, can highlight for us sort of the the kinds of roads that you go down that don't necessarily help you sort out some of those questions. Mm -hmm. Because, as you were saying, they may prompt us to think about do I need to be voting? Would that is that a requisite ingredient? But on the other hand, you can look at Rousseau and you can see the kinds of theorizing he was doing and then how that got used mm-hmm. later and realize, oh, this theory over here doesn't necessarily promote good government. And the question is why? Is it because it's vague? Is it because it doesn't have enough implications worked out? Or is it because theory isn't the sort of thing that actually makes governments go, right? There's all kinds of reasons why that could have been the case. And this is the period in history when people are starting to take that question of how do we make this thing work? Nations are beginning to coalesce together to one extent or another. And like Rousseau saw, all of these people banding together allows for bigger and bigger sorts of things. And the question is, how are you going to make that work? How are you going to make a nation work? Mm-hmm. Well, Brian, do you have any other comments or any other critiques of Rousseau as we're winding down our time talking about the social contract? I think just reiterating that his question is a very interesting one. It also, just as a side note, When reading prominent works from history, I think a fascinating way to categorize them is like, what is their main question? Even more so than what answers do they propose? Just asking, what is the main question that this work has? And the question that Rousseau is asking is a really interesting one and relevant for us in that we see people around us who want to question the legitimacy of our governments in one way or another, want to say that they're you know, they didn't vote for the people in power so they don't have to listen to them or the government is just ideological so I don't need to listen to it. It's worth asking, is that direction of constantly worrying about the legitimacy of a government, is that a good direction to go? And especially as a Christian, when might I go that direction? When might I say, you know what, this is truly a government that I should not listen to, that does not have authority over me. And when might I be encouraged to go down that road by bad sorts of impulses? Like, when might it just be the general culture, which is very individualistic and 
prone to wanting to make sure that I maintain my freedom. When do I need to go against that and say, you know what, this government is not exactly how I would choose it, but I just, I need to obey it. This is not a point where I need, where I should be questioning its legitimacy. I think it's often helpful to think about what questions are people asking. And in this case, I think it's a very relevant question for us to ask. And Rousseau's answer helps us to maybe get some more data as we think about it. But in some ways, his question is more interesting than his answer. It's also important to think about where are people coming from when they ask and answer these questions, Yes, right? Hobbes writes Leviathan, which is very much, we need a very strong king to keep the chaos from happening. And he wrote it right after the English Civil War, where there was all this chaos, (laughs) And John Locke writes the second treatise on government right after the glorious revolution of England, where one king who was Protestant replaced, actually made it impossible for a Catholic king to rule England. That had been the source of problems dating back to the Civil War, for instance. And for him, that resolved a centuries-long issue that was great. We've solved this problem that we've had for so long, and so he has a much sunnier picture of what's going on. And Rousseau is interesting because on the one hand, he is responding to things like the religious wars, and he's aware of all of the conflict that Protestantism and Catholicism has had across the world. But he's also living at a time where that's not really affecting him personally. And he's wondering, like, what great vistas could we reach if we could just get beyond what we're doing right now? And I think one of the issues that afflicts a lot of our political culture today is we just don't have a lot of sense of history. And we don't have the sorts of issues that a lot of people have been working on for a long time, and there isn't a sense of gratitude for our system as imperfect as it might be. One of the things that I think about a lot is I grew up not in the United States, and we occasionally had to bribe people to get our mail. That is something no American has ever had to deal with. (laughs) So there's a little bit of a danger of not evaluating the situation properly when you're very comfortable in what you've ever known. And Rousseau is not currently like in a time of con. I mean, his, I mean, the way that he talks about the state of nature, Oh, you know, they like live together until they don't want to. And then they just go their own way and they do whatever and they can get anything they need. It's like so informed by so many systems that are allowing him to carry on that kind of life without the support of his family and things of that nature. And to think that everything is like that is, I don't know, I think it's very telling. Yeah. And also, like, in terms of remembering where people are coming from in the state of nature, as you just described, I mean, things are great. In a lot of ways under his view and part of that is because he really has no concept of sin in there so as a christian that should also any social contract theory where you're giving a picture of what human beings are like and how they would come together ignoring sin is ignoring a huge facet of what human beings are actually like and probably one of the major impediments to any government 
that's also important to recognize like where are people coming from he has a big piece that's missing in the federalist papers there's this famous line about if men were angels there would we would need no government and it's often taken as some kind of reflection on whoever it was hamilton's view of human nature but I don't know, like human beings are a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. Like each individual is a mixed bag and then the whole of humanity together is a mixed bag. So whatever government you're putting together, a lot of it has to just be worked out on the fly because culture affects how a government can work and the resources you have can affect how it works. And there isn't any kind of theoretical state of nature that you can posit that's actually going to deal with the realities on the ground. I think this is one of the issues that we were talking about when we were talking about epistemology this last quarter is Descartes has this idea that you can just think about stuff and figure it out. And so many of the other philosophers are like, no, like <laughs> you can't, <laughs> you have to actually go and figure it out. You actually have to interact with reality with varying opinions as to what that includes. But this picture that Rousseau has is very idealized. Yes. And one of the things that I keep bringing up on this podcast is how we shouldn't necessarily villainize folks for their philosophy leading to all sorts of horrible things. And maybe that's Rousseau's sort of saving grace is that he's just so comfortable with his head in the clouds about how this all could work that he didn't mean for it to lead to the French Revolution. And we are fortunate, unfortunate enough to see some of that work itself out to know better. If we can pay attention to the history and also just how theories interact with reality. Yes. Watching how theories play out is often instructive because they don't always go where people meant them to. And often they don't. Brian, I think this has been a pretty interesting conversation about uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his social contract. Any last words before we say our goodbyes? I don't think so. I, I, found, I find reading Rousseau interesting and frustrating at the same time. So this was a good conversation to have and I'm also ready to move on to somebody else. If you have comments or questions about Rousseau or any of the other things we talk about on this podcast, you can email us at podcast at gutenberg.edu. Once again, Brian, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about Rousseau. Thank you. And we will be back in a little while to continue talking about the books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. <laughs>